from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show on the gender gap. The gender pay gap, that difference between what men and women, is certainly not a new issue, and it's really not an easy one to fix. Individuals, organizations, governments have devoted significant energy to try to understand it and close it. As some have reported, at the rate we're going now, it could take us 100 years years to get there. Well, that's due to a number of complex factors that we discuss all the time. There may be one critical one that's been long overlooked, the early work experiences of teenagers. Today, we're going to talk about that with Yasmin Besson-Casino, author of The Cost of Being a Girl, Working Teens and the Origins of the Gender Wage Gap, about this very thing, why we need to examine those early work experiences, and what we can do as parents and employers to get and keep girls on track for true long-term economic equality. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd really love to hear from you. When did you start working? And what did you do? Did you babysit? Did you work retail? And how did you make that happen? Did you negotiate? We want to hear your story. Join in the conversation. Give us a call, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844 942 7866. And while you think back to your first jobs, I'm going to tell you a little bit about today's guest. Yasmin Besson Casino is the author of The Cost of Being a Girl Working Teens and the Origins of the Gender Wage Gap. She's a professor of sociology and a distinguished scholar at Montclair State University. And her research focuses on work, gender, and youth. Yasmin serves as the book review editor of Gender and Society and was the managing editor of the excellent Men and Masculinities while at SUNY Stonybrook, where she earned her PhD in sociology. Yasmin's the author also of Consuming Work, Youth Labor in America, co-author with Dan Casino of Consuming Politics, John Stewart, Branding, and the Youth Vote in America. And I have to say I haven't read it, and just from the title, I think I'm going to. And co-editor with Michael Kimmel of the Jesse Bernard Reader. You may have read her work in The Atlantic, Fortune, Harvard Business Review, and Newsday, and today we're lucky enough to have her as our guest. So with that, let me say Yasmin, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So Yasmin, I want to start with what made you start. What made you start considering these very first years of work, especially when they're the kind of years that nobody even puts on their resume? Sure. Um, gender is something I'm interested in. And one day I was sitting at this coffee shop um, thinking about uh, the gender wage gap, and we were thinking about all the typical theories of how we explain the wage gap. And, you know, women have babies, women leave the workforce. And as I was thinking about all these theories, it, it just struck me that no matter how we look at it, we overlook basically an important part of our workforce, which are the teenage workers. And at the time, I was sitting in a coffee shop, and a teenage worker was pouring my coffee, and, and it just struck me as this is a very important part of our labor force, and we just don't worry about them or we don't talk about them. So as you began to research them, what were the principles that you had to focus on in order to start to figure out whether there was a there there? Well, at first, I started looking at the data. Um, National Longitudinal Study of Youth is an excellent data set. Uh, It's national, and it tracks teenagers down over many, many years. And it's a longitudinal data set, so it's the same teenagers. So you can track down the the effects of the gender wage gap or these early work experiences. And what I noticed was when teenagers are, I guess, tweens, they're 12 and 13, 
we see perfect equality. And by the time they get to be 14 and 15, we see the first wage gap, which just widens with age. Okay. So there are a couple of pieces of information there that I find kind of remarkable. So when we think about when people start working, it really is as early as 12 years old. It really is as early as 12 years old. I mean, technically, the earliest we can do is 16, but that's the official age. And this is 12 years old without it being illegal or some form of abuse. Well, think about freelance jobs. There are a lot of types of jobs that are not technically illegal. And even employee-type jobs, when they're 14 and 15, if it doesn't interfere with their emotional development or their school, uh, they're perfectly allowed to do that. Okay. And so what are the types of jobs that kids have when they're 12 and 13 years old that you're talking about? Uh, freelance jobs like babysitting, for example, mm-hmm. and a lot of yard work, uh, snow removal. The kind of stuff that we see kids in our neighborhoods doing as a way to make some pocket money. Oh, absolutely. And you see young entrepreneurs coming to your house when it goes. <laughs> My brother was one of them. He used to make a fortune. Um, so one of the other things that you said that was interesting was that when kids are starting to do this when they're about 12 years old, it's neutral. There's no gender gap. What are the factors that you use to determine that? Tell us you know, how to explain that to a layperson. Well, when they're 12 and 13, we don't see a substantial difference. But by the time they get to be 14 and 15, most of the time, some employee-type jobs start being available. And what we see is boys moving into those employee-type jobs and girls stay in freelance jobs, especially babysitting way longer than they intend to. Okay. So it's that difference of when they start working for an organization or a system with an infrastructure and norms. Is that the key difference? Okay. And so what is it that makes boys move into those employee-type jobs and not girls? That's an interesting question. A lot of the freelance uh, workers, especially babysitters that I spoke to, said it was these informal ties. The families they work for would tell them, we really need you. We can't function without you. And even though they wanted to move into organizations, they just didn't because they felt a loyalty to uh, people they work for. So guilt and emotional obligation start impacting us that early? Yes, it does. And most of them would work for um, people they kind of knew, not direct relatives, but friends of friends, you know, friends of relatives. And because of these informal networks, they felt loyalty towards them. It's interesting because when you use the term loose ties, I think about the way that we talk about women in networking, that um, it's not our deep relationships, but the acquaintances that we make and the extended network we make as professionals. And you're using a similar term to talk about the loose ties through which we get babysitting gigs as young women and girls. But these loose ties are actually in a social network that has a different kind of emotional hold on us. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And that's what surprised me because, you know, in our education, we always learn about the importance of these weak ties. They help us find jobs. And even though these weak ties really help these girls find jobs, these ties also stop them from asking for more money. Ah, because they're kind of intimate ties and it has emotional hold over us. Yes. And even though they weren't really intimate ties, I didn't really talk to anybody who was, you know, working directly for a sibling or a direct relative. It was always my godmother's sister's cousin, so I can't ask for more money, which made no sense. (laughs) Right. But I think especially if I think about what it felt like to be that age or I think about the people in my extended family and friend community, it's like somebody who knows your mom or somebody who knows your aunt. It's close to home. Absolutely. So they felt awkward about asking for money because they kind of knew them. Now, do you you see 
young women who do make their way into employee-type jobs being more comfortable asking for more money? Because it's something women, you know, struggle with throughout our careers. Um, not necessarily. Even when they move into these employee-type jobs, the expectations from them are quite different. Uh, for one, aesthetic labor. They're supposed to look like the brand and sound like the brand and, as a result, buy more stuff. A lot of them would get into so much credit card debt just to keep up, just to keep up their jobs. And when they asked for money, sometimes they were told, you're here for the clothes or you're here for the discounts. So in, I want to back up because there's a lot in what you just said, and you wrote about this beautifully in the book, that there's this kind of there, – that there are two kinds of labor, emotional labor and aesthetic labor that are impacting these young women. Can you explain what those two things are and how they unfold? I mean, if we think about our service sector and a lot of retail jobs – they're not just looking for workers. They look like workers who look like the brand. Because when we walk into a store, we don't just see the brand. We see the people. So those people have to be basically the front of that uh, brand. So when I walked into Sephora to try and update my makeup, and I saw all these gorgeous women with perfectly made-up faces, part of it was aesthetic labor. Absolutely. Because it's part of their job to look like Sephora benefited them to fit in there. Oh, absolutely. So think about going to Abercrombie and Fitch or Starbucks. There is a type of worker who works there. And, and it's not big... an accident. Oh, no, not by accident. And a part of it is investing in their look. So a lot of them are either required to or highly encouraged to uh, buy the clothes or purchase the newest clothes to keep up that look. So this is really our earliest experience with trying to look like the job that we want and trying to, you know, polish ourselves up for an interview but the, and do it and what our work attire has to look like. But it sounds like it affects us in more insidious ways. Oh, absolutely. And for younger women especially, they're encouraged to get a credit card or store cards and charge them on their card. I spoke to one young woman who just said in her experience of working at a retail store, she regrets it. And her, um, at the end of her work experience, instead of earning money, she had so much debt that it rivaled her student loans. You know, when you wrote about that part, and it's kind of staggering to realize you're going to work so that you can make money to save for college, so that you can offset expenses, and you're actually incurring debt. And then when, you, when I read that part of the book, I remembered when I was a teenager, I went to work in a gallery. Um, in a shopping center near me. And I was an art major, and it seemed like a great fit. And I actually learned some useful skills. But I kept wanting to frame my own work there, and I wanted to buy things that were on display. And I wound up in a habit where every paycheck, money was being deducted for that service I purchased or that thing I was taking home. So I was not unusual in this. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, this is a common story that's echoed throughout. Now, young men go to work in these stores as well. Is the same dynamic happening with them? Uh, to some extent, yes. At the, initially, uh, a lot of them do have uh, aesthetic labor requirements. But the biggest gender difference is they're not expected to keep up the looks. Most of them said, yes, I dressed up, I bought the clothes, but that was a one-time deal. After I had the job, I didn't have the same pressures. Are the pressures coming for the girls, is it, are they coming from inside ourselves because we live in a media-saturated culture? Or are those pressures coming from the stores and the employers directly? Uh, both. Actually, it was coming from employers and also the uh, store culture. Most of it was also coming from other workers who work there and 
and there was a culture of buying the new T-shirts and new color flip-flops, and it would just escalate. And have you found any ways that kids who are working in those environments can resist it? How does it unfold kid to kid in that setting? Resistance was very difficult because a lot of it required coordination, and most of them didn't resist because they would say, why should I resist? It's not my real job. If this was my career, I would, but it's not worth it. So when but you it say, is a real job. It is a real job. So talk to me a little bit about how do we define our real jobs and, and why does not defining these things as real jobs have such a negative impact? That I found very surprising as I was talking to many teenagers and, and some older workers as well, that if this was a part-time job that they were doing as they were going to school, a lot of them said to me, this isn't my real job. If they experience any kind of anything negative in the workplace, they wouldn't report it because it's not my real job. But what makes something a real job is it's still a job. It's still a real experience they're they're having. Is it that they didn't feel like they needed to invest in the future of the job? Well, I think they see a disconnect between that particular job and their future careers. Because this this isn't something that they're going to do for their careers. So it's just the job, and they don't see it as a part of a bigger structure. If they're not willing to talk about a problem, why don't they just walk away? Why are they so willing to endure it? That's interesting, because I, I don't think they see a difference between that individual job or jobs in general. They think it's all the same. So is it that they, they're not discerning yet that this isn't what work is like for everybody? Well, I think so, because they don't see it as a work experience. It's partly for pocket money, but it's partly to be associated with a cool brand or to see their friends. So that work-leisure distinction is not as uh, clear-cut as it is for some of the older workers. Is there any part of this, you know, as as you're explaining this to me, I'm wondering, these are kids who spend most of their day in school where they don't make the rules, they can't really challenge authority. Um, It's a set of structures that are basically benevolent and make sense to them, and they accept the good with the bad. Could that be a factor in this? Oh, that's really interesting to see and look at the linkages. Well, absolutely. One of the reasons is that they see that they are in charge, and they are in charge of something, and they enjoy that part. So it's a newfound freedom that's valuable, even if in other ways they're not being respected or they're being compromised. Well, absolutely. And it also has social benefits for a lot of them. I mean, we have a lot of uh, suburban teenagers, especially, who want to work because they want to see their friends. I mean, they find kind of like lost in centralist suburbs and they don't have (laughs) enough (laughs) social spaces to connect. It's so funny that you say that. I I go back to that time when I worked in that gallery and um, it would make my day when the boy that I liked would just happen to be in the shopping center and come visit me. And my friends would come by and visit. It was the highlight of my day. And I realized that on my day off, um, I had to go to them. But here a social world came into me. Oh, I'm glad you brought up us um, shopping centers because a lot of shopping centers today are they're different from our childhood that they're banning <laughs> teenagers and they have very clear anti-teenage policies. Oh, so wow. They have nowhere to go. And so unless they're working someplace like a mall or in another teen-friendly place or a store that te- that's geared for teens, they won't get that social interaction. They won't get that social interaction. They can't just hang out at, at the mall, so they might as well take a job. And so when they go in to take these jobs and they're working within structures, um, 
they at least there's an established pay rate. There are hours that they bill for. Are there other are there places within those settings that they should be self-advocating that they're not other than this pressure to purchase and acquire and look like the brand? Well, another place of inequality was their position within the same structure. A lot of girls were, or younger women were placed in situations where they deal with difficult customers. And the boys because, weren't. And the boys weren't because they're told, you're so good with customers. You're so good with people. Just deal with people. So ironically, living- their social and emotional intelligence and skills were putting them in the hot seat with the worst customers. Absolutely. So their work experience was very different from that of boys. And did the boys have different successes as a result of not being challenged in this kind of emotional way in retail? Well, I'm sure. It's, if you're not putting put in these positions, you have an easier easier shift. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're certainly less tired when you come home. <laughs> By the oh, way, you uh, would see a lot of these younger women. They would just report feeling just drained at the, at the end of their shift because somebody's shouting at them. Yeah, I can't blame them. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest is Yasmin Besson-Casino, author of The Cost of Being a Girl. If you've got a question about what we're discussing or you want to talk to us about your own early work experiences, what you learned from them and how you see them now, we'd really love to hear from you. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Yasmin, before we were talking talking about um, retail and this aesthetic labor and this need to look like the brand. Mm-hmm. In the short run, it means that the girls are spending the very money that they're trying to earn to look like the brand. And we know that while they're on site, they're having different experiences. What are the long-term impacts of be- becoming part of an aesthetic workforce? Is it positive or negative for them? I think there are a lot of negative repercussions. One of the things we see, and and U.S. is a unique country in that sense, that of all the industrialized countries, if we look at our uh, youth labor force, young people here tend to be more from upper uh, SES groups. So the more higher um, income, the higher your parents' income, the more likely you are to work. So socioeconomic. Okay, so the higher your socioeconomic status, the more likelihood is, is. it is the more likely it is that you're going to be working part-time as a teenager? Yes. Why is that? Well, because the ones who want the jobs are the high SES teenagers, and the high SES teenagers have the look. They have the aesthetic. Ah, okay. So it's, they're driven not necessarily by financial need, but desire to kind of augment and status and social circles. And because they may... Um, present better, whether it's how they speak or how they look in terms of that retail environment, they're lo- more likely to get the job. Absolutely. But this, in the long term, creates a big bias in our in our workforce. And the ones who really need the jobs to stay in school or help out their families are unable to get the jobs. Okay. So right here, we have several interesting points of diversion. So you noted that at 12 years old, kids go into the workforce, whether they're shoveling snow or babysitting, and they're making the same amount of money. And by the time they're 14 or 15 and they start to enter into more structured environments, that starts to change. And part of it is which environments they go into and what jobs they're given when they get there. This then is now clearly compounded 
by race and class. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when we say there's a pay gap, the pay gap is not the same for all teenagers. African-American girls feel it a lot, a lot more. And so what's the difference in the pay gap for kids at that age? Where, how are they feeling it in numbers? So if we look at the, the actual numbers are actually in the book, but as it starts at 14 and 15, when we control for race, there's a big interaction effect. And for African-American girls, it's a wider gap. And age makes it worse. The older they get, uh, the gap gets wider. In the book, you talked about that some of, there are certain patterns and habits that happen in the retail environment that um, reinforce this hiring of more affluent kids from higher socioeconomic environments. Could you describe what some of those are to us? Oh, absolutely. It's, in an attempt, a lot of employers are, saying are conscious of this, and they want to hire teenagers who don't really care about the money that they have the right look, they have the right clothes, and once are already spending a lot of money at their store. In fact, a lot of employers say they hire on the spot and they choose from existing uh, customers. Ah, so it's almost like their customers become the place to recruit employees. Oh, absolutely. Who just become customers as employees, apparently. (laughs) I, I, I was fascinated by this fluid definition of, you know, worker and consumer. Yeah, I had never thought about it before like that, and it, apparently it's pervasive. Oh, very, because here's a group of kids who really like your brand. They look like your brand. They spend money there, and who's better to sell those uh, sell those clothes? Absolutely. Okay. So, And in the book, when you talked about this pattern, one of the things that was interesting that I hadn't really thought about is the kids who apply but don't rush to get hired and don't get hired by somewhere else seem like better candidates for the kind of labor that they're seeking. Oh, sure. I mean, that shows commitment to the brand, but also it becomes a loophole to eliminate less affluent workers. Because the kids who really need to make money can't stay there with an open application and not take another job. Oh, no. I mean, they can't wait for six months or sometimes a year. So... What can they do? They're going to take any job, potentially a fast food job. Are um, non-white employees having different emotional experiences working? Like in the way you talked about girls being given difficult customers, are their work assignments different based on the color of their skin? Absolutely. I mean, the interaction effect of race and gender was was very important, especially for African-American young women in the service sector. They had a harder time finding jobs and keeping jobs, and the expectations on the same job were very different, especially in terms of expressing anger, expressing, um, like, serving with a smile. It really was not the same for white and African-American young women. Can you give us some detail about what those differences are like? Uh, In the book, I have an example of a young woman named Kiara who works at a sporting goods store. And she talks about how some of the customers complained to her supervisor because she greeted them too much or she smiled too many times. And when some of the um, uh, white young women uh, did the exact same things, they didn't see that. So when they served with a smile, it was great. But when Kiara did this, um, some of the co- uh, customers complained that she wasn't genuine, that she was just trying to do it for a job. So their very authenticity was questioned just because of the color of their skin. 
Absolutely. What about dealing with hostile customers? Were they abused in a greater way by the angry customers? Oh, yes. She actually had stories about how she was, um, I think, one of the customers threw shoeboxes at her because she wouldn't accept the competitor's coupons. So the customers were more abusive to African-American young women. And is this an example of those cases where, um, as an adult, if you were treated that way, you would you would ask your manager to intervene and protect you. But are the, these girls don't feel comfortable going to ask for help? Is that correct? That's correct. And and they have this learned helplessness. They don't think that things are going to change. That they just say that word learned helplessness. It seems like that's rife throughout this teenage experience. That was very unsettling for me. For you know, when we think about our young workers and teenagers, I was. I was hoping to hear like more enthusiastic, you know, more positive stories, but it was amazing how we send our kids to work and they they internalize all the problems of the workplace. And a lot of them are told very positive messages at home, you know, you can be anything you want, you could do this, you can negotiate. Well, they know better. They they experience firsthand the problems in the workplace and when we give them positive messages, I worry they don't they don't listen to us. Is is it that is it just the positive messages that we're giving them that they're not listening to? Or is it also, are we giving them the work advice they need to navigate these things? Well, I think it's both. Some of them got very positive work advice at home. You know, it's, I'm thinking about a babysitter I was talking to, and she and her mother had all these, um, she set up a business, she had these flyers and cards, and she was putting up all her stuff all over the neighborhood, so she was marketing herself and oh, networking. Absolutely. She was marketing and working and negotiating, but but when she did those things, I think the response she got from her employers, the parents of the kids, was not what she expected. And after a couple of years, she has internalized that things are not going to change no matter what I do. And was this just the experience of a young woman, or was it a young woman of color who was getting this kind of feedback? No, this was not a young woman of color. Okay, so it was just the message. Even with the, without that added burden, she was getting the message that she should not be so assertive and proactive. Well, she also tried. She tried to negotiate. And when she did, just like her mom said, and she learned in class, well, she, she didn't get her raise. And so I think her first-hand experience in the workplace really, like, makes her not listen to her mom or or her classes or her teachers. Right. And to stop trying. And to stop trying. Okay. So we are here on Women at Work Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I'm talking with Yasmin um, about these amazing issues affecting the gender wage gap and how early it begins. We'd love to hear your story. You could give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And when we get back, we're going to explore all this: how this affects girls who are working as babysitters, and what we as parents and employers can do going forward. So once again, our number is one eight four four Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. I'm Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work, and we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get 
more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today I'm talking with Yasmin Bessin Casino, author of The Cost of Being a Girl, Working Teens and the Origins of the Gender Wage Gap, about how we actually get those girls to enter that pipeline without already derailing their chances for economic equality. If you want to join in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you, whether you have questions for Yasmin about how to help our daughters negotiate their first jobs um, or to share with us the experiences you learned along the way. Our phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844 942-7866. Before the break, we were talking with Yasmin about a number of different things. The amazing fact that the gender wage gap actually begins somewhere between when kids are 12 and 15 years old, about the enormous impact that something called aesthetic labor has on girls, particularly when they're working retail, and this other concept of emotional labor. So Jasmine, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you. And so what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is I want to take a step back and talk about this whole babysitting gig. And you were talking with us in the first half hour about aesthetic labor. And it's an interesting concept about how what we look like and maintaining our look is a factor in our employment. Talk to me about emotional labor and how it relates to babysitting. Oh, sure. When we talk about aesthetic labor or emotional labor, we always think about corporations. But what I found interesting is when you're dealing with babysitters, they have just, just as much as aesthetic and emotional labor as other jobs. You know, it's not like the Abercrombie and Fitch aesthetic, but when you're going for a job and interviewing for a babysitter position, uh, there's a lot of aesthetic labor going on. <laughs> okay, so give us some examples of us. Tell, us. tell it where it plays out. Well, a lot of the girls I spoke to or younger women I spoke to uh, talked about what they had to wear and how they presented themselves, and they had these dual aesthetic labors. Right? They had to present themselves in a certain way to the children. They had to look fun and nice. And at the same time, they had to come across as professional to the mothers and, and fathers. Right, without being off-putting to the kids. Exactly. And, and that's hard. <laughs> yes. And I think more difficult even is this concept of emotional labor. So take a, a full step back and tell us what's emotional labor when you think of it in a corporate or organizational structure for adults. So emotional labor in the workplace is when we work in a job, we're not just selling our time, we're also selling our emotions. So our emotions have to, the emotions we display, the emotions that we project, they are a part of who we are in the workplace. And so the labor, um, how we deploy them or how we suppress them? Well, both. So if I'm in the workplace, whether it's a freelance job or an employee-type job, during my shift, what kinds of emotions am I displaying? Or if I'm actually not feeling, what are my real emotions and how am I suppressing them? So let me see if I'm understanding you by giving you some examples. So emotional labor might include the stress that I feel giving a presentation um, or a presentation that I wasn't told I was going to give. It might include the pressure I feel uh, receiving a performance evaluation or giving one or um, being derailed by um, an insulting colleague in a meeting. Well, it's also more like uh, managing your emotions during a shift. So when you're told to smile in the workplace and put on a happy front and serving with a smile, what if you're not feeling up to it that day? Maybe you have a headache. Maybe something at home happened, but that's irrelevant. During your shift, 
you can't think about that. You can't project that. You have to serve with a smile. So it's also that effort of how you suppress the parts of you that you're really feeling in order to be um, emotionally presenting in the workplace as is required of you. Yes. And that includes changing the words that you use, changing the expressions that you use. You change your, just like we change our looks, we also change our language and demeanor. And that's taxing on us in ways that I'm guessing we don't often think about and realize. Oh, it, it takes a big toll on a lot of a lot of workers, children, and you know, young adults and grown-ups in the workplace alike. Oh, absolutely. And so, talk to me about how this emotional labor um, gets put to use in a babysitting context. Oh, babysitting is all about emotional labor. Because I'm sure managing those kids, a lot of the babysitters get angry. A lot of them get tired. They're physically worn out. But they're not supposed to talk about that. They're not supposed to voice that. They just have to look happy and upbeat and loving and caring at the same time. So you mean when I would come home from work and I'm fried and tired and I ask my babysitter how my daughter was and she said she was adorable as always, that may <laughs> not have been the case. <laughs> that may not have been the case. Um, and she, But she feels a pressure to tell me that, to, to, to make me feel like everything's okay. Well, true. A lot of the babysitters said, I'm physically tired, but I don't think anybody wants to hear about that. So they don't want to complain about what happened with a, ch- with a child or if they're in physical pain. They suppress that. And what about conflict with the children? Oh, that ha- happens a lot of times. But, and it's something that they actually worry about. How do you discipline children? What if there's a conflict with a child? And about boundaries. What if you're making the kids do homework and they don't want to? Yeah, when you were writing about that in the book, it brought a couple things into high relief for me. When I was a teenager and I babysat, it was largely for neighbors who lived walking distance to my house. It was for their kids on Saturday night when they would go out. And basically my job was to um, get the kids to put on their pajamas. We could play a game or watch a little TV, and then they went to bed. And then I stayed up watching whatever I wanted on TV, chatting with my boyfriend on the phone and eating Stella Doro Swiss fudge cookies. And I thought that was a great way to earn, like, $8 an hour at the time. But one of the things that you wrote about is a form of babysitting that's in lieu of nannies or professional child care centers or even tutors or teachers. Oh, absolutely. And in, in our research, we usually look at them separately. But one of the things I found surprising is how fluid that definition was. So some of the babysitters I spoke to started exactly like you did. You know, Friday night, Saturday night, the kid would go to sleep and they would watch television. And that slowly morphed into, oh, now the couple has two or three children and now it's full-time. It's not just babysitting, it's full-time child care. And it includes um, running light errands or cooking or or helping with homework. And with these increases in responsibilities, are the babysitters making more money? No. And that's part of the problem. And that's part of the problem. The job description changes, but the money stays the same. Okay. I want to come back to this, but Greg's calling from Pennsylvania. Greg, thank you so much for listening to Women at Work. What's on your mind? Hey, good afternoon. How are you? I'm fine. Actually, having just listened to that last piece, <laughs> I, I cha- I'm not changing my question. My first question was, how is it different whether it's a guy, I mean, it's a teenage girl or a teenage guy, because babysitting is kind of a job-specific thing, but it entails a lot of different things. 
And in terms of the emotional, I think the way she phrased it, emotional work. Mm-hmm. The emotional labor, you know, yeah. Emotional labor. Yeah. How, is, how would it be different for a guy or a girl? If it's in a, fact it is. It's a great question, Yasmin. Thank you. That's a great question, Greg. And I'm glad you brought up uh, male babysitters. They are in demand, and I, I couldn't talk to a lot of them because there are not a lot of them, but they are in demand, especially for babysitting <laughs> boys. And if, they're, if they can play sports and if they can teach them about sports, they, they right. get paid a lot higher, and the emotional demands are much, much different. They're not hmm. expected to be attached to the children. They're respected by the children, and they definitely don't do any housework or there are no extras. Their time is respected. So babysitting is huh. a really good gig for the guys. Oh, absolutely. It's a great gig for the guys. Greg, are your kids uh-huh. babysitting? Well, <clears throat> I, I, have to, I have to be frank and honest because my daughters are now grown. However, they did do the babysitting thing. They also waitress, speaking of emotional labor, waitressing, both of them. Um, and, but your last point, which I just heard while I was on hold, brought to mind a, a friend of mine who happens to be female. We were at a dinner party a couple weeks ago. And your thing about babysitting getting paid the same, she got situations similar to what you were saying. It turned into a birthday party, which was never announced. So I'm, I'm in your camp there. You know, that's not the same watching like 12 or 14 kids <laughs> no. getting paid the same for, you know, whatever, whether it's 10, 12, 15, $20 an hour. Right. When they first hired her on. So I'm totally behind you there. (laughs) That's good to hear. Greg, thanks for calling in. And I appreciate you sharing this. Yasmin, one of the things that you talked about before that I think relates to what Greg was saying and and this question about boys and babysitting is um, you talk in the book about how different it is from the moment that they go about arranging for pay. And by the way, if any of you are listening, you'd like to call in, we'd like to know what are your kids' experiences? What are you seeing as parents? And what did you do when you hired babysitters? Our phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So Yasmin, what happens, what's the difference very specifically in how girls are arranging their salaries versus boys when they babysit? Well, one main difference was boys were asked how much do you expect to make? Give us a range. Whereas almost all the girls I spoke to said I was just given a number, and that's what I expected. And they uh, the, and they took it, whatever number was given to them. And they took it. And even when they wanted to negotiate on the number, sometimes that starting number was very low. And one big difference was boys seemed to know they were more connected and talked more about money with their friends, that they knew how much jobs are worth, whereas girls just didn't know how much jobs paid for. It's so funny because we talk about that all the time in terms of women in the workplace, that men seem to find a way to know what other men are making. And so that when it's time for them to consider salary, to ask for a raise, to negotiate for a new role, they know where they fit in the marketplace so they have a norm to anchor on. And women often have no idea and are often very nervous to ask, almost as if talking about money is taboo. What is it that's affecting kids so early that this is baked in when they're 14 years old? That was absolutely true. And I was surprised that I mean, given how few uh, male babysitters there are, I was surprised how they connected and they somehow knew how much they were getting paid. But it was substantially more than the girls. And girls tended to know other 
freelance workers or babysitters, but they just didn't know how much to ask. And there was a taboo around, especially for babysitters, because money is in opposition to care, as if they don't care about the children. So asking for money within that setting was especially bad. Oh, so, wait, so I want to focus on that for a second, because you talked about it a lot in the book as kind of important drivers that I think bears discussing, which is that... Um, when we are babysitting, we're viewed as caretakers for somebody else's children. So apparently we're being judged heavily and understandably about the degree to which we will provide care. And therefore, if we talk about money, that really undermines that? That really undermines that. And a lot of them, they, a lot of the women had, young women had techniques of how to get around that. Um, some of them said in their first session, they refused the money or in their like trial session, they don't accept, um, especially if they have like commute co- commuting costs, they turn it down just to show it's not about the money. Which some is so them, ironic like, because I don't know anybody that really babysits for sport. Exactly. Like, why would you why would you do this? It is a transaction like everything else. But they have to have this display of. I really care about the children. <laughs> it, so it's really like this. Ironically, it's the social dance that we have to go through where if we where in that social dynamic and the girls learn this early and the employers, I think, are responsible for perpetuating it, that if we talk about money, it makes it feel crass or craven. And because you're talking about having somebody trust their children with you, you have to somehow rise above it by making money seem like it doesn't matter. Well, but not for everyone, not for boys. It was perfectly okay for male babysitters to say, this is how much I want, this is how much I deserve. It's almost like we respect boys more and allow them the respect of saying, my time is worth money and you want somebody whose time is valuable. But we don't grant girls that and we're doing that at 14 years old. And we perpetuate that. So as parents who are hiring babysitters around that point, what should we be doing differently? Well, be equal with boys and girls and start by asking how much they want rather than just giving a number. And and we can't really blame the parents either because a lot of the parents meant well, but a lot of them didn't have the information either. A lot of them didn't know, okay, how much, how much should I pay a babysitter? What's the going rate in my area? And- we have websites for other jobs, but I wish we had websites for information on freelance jobs. I'm wondering if Glassdoor should open a section for teenagers and babysitting and retail work. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Yasmin, one of the other things that really struck me when you were writing about babysitting in the work was, um, when you were writing about it in the book, was the emotional obligation and exploitation that happens. And could you talk a little bit about where it comes up for babysitters and um, what you think are critical moments where between what we help teach our own children and how we listen as the employer, that we could be doing things differently? Well, in terms of the job description, a lot of the female um, babysitters experienced a different job. They had more unpaid hours. The moms and dads would talk to them before and after their shift. Um, During their shift, they would be asked to do more stuff that wasn't in their original contract. And that was very different for boys and girls. Um, Girls' time was not respected, but boys had a rigid time. If they were hired for two hours, they would be out of there in two hours. 
And, and I think as and it yeah, sounds like that's one of the things we can do. And it sounds like there's a funny ripple effect. Um, in the book, you talked about this experience. Like, let's say the mom gets hung up at work because her own time is not respected or managed well. And she comes, and so therefore she's coming home late, so the babysitter's stuck late. You told some very compelling stories about college students who were actually missing their own classes because they were compensating for another family's pressures. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you feel for the employers as well. I mean, I had a lot of stories in there about women who are coming from commuting from the city and their own time isn't respected and they come home and it's the ripple effect. And I think if we want to change this, we have to change the same thing in other workplaces as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Although there's um, less infrastructure that has to change with our own babysitter. So, for example, if I'm late, I miss my train, the train is late, it starts to compound, I get home, I'm 45 minutes late for my babysitter. A, I've now screwed up her whole day. Um, but B, I need to be compensating for her for that time. Should we be making deals with our babysitters like we would hourly employees, that if you work overtime, you get, you know, time and a half? Oh, maybe. Absolutely. Okay. So let's make a call for that out there. (laughs) (laughs) Pay your babysitters overtime. And you also noted in the book this dynamic, which I totally understand as a mom, that I've had somebody else taking care of my child. I'm re-entering the workplace. Here's the person who has this precious obligation, and I want to talk to them. I want to know how they are. I want to know how my kid is. I want to talk about a problem. But you're reporting that we tend to not pay our babysitters for that time. That's absolutely true. And that's a delicate balance. On one hand, we do want to have that conversation. On the other hand, those conversations add up. And most of the time, they're unpaid. So it's interesting. Like in our workplaces, we know if you have an hourly employee and they work nine to five, whether you're doing their performance evaluation or you're coaching them or you're giving them extra work to do, it happens on the clock. We should be respecting our babysitters more and paying them on the clock. We should. And also, in the workplace, our job descriptions are very clear. With babysitters, their job description isn't very clear. Sometimes it's babysitting. Sometimes it's, you know, taking them to play dates. Sometimes there's cooking involved. Sometimes there's, you know, light housework. And as a mom, I understand wanting all of those things from a babysitter, but you're bringing up the important point that these are very, very different kinds of responsibilities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's babysitting is very different from cooking for the family or running errands and picking up dry cleaning. And also you talked about babysitters who um, have skills in another language and they're asked to speak to kids in a second language as if they're language tutors. Those people would be getting 25 or $45 an hour. Oh, easily. But most of them have other certifications as well. Some of them would teach, you know, kids swimming or another language, like you said, but they're not compensated for those. What about working at a camp instead? Like, I'm thinking about my own daughter. She's turning 16 this summer. She's crazy excited to go get a job. She wants to drive. She needs gas money. You know, got all kinds of ambitions for what she's going to do and how much she's going to make. And in trying to think, how do I guide her? Um, Would it be better for her to work at a camp where there's an infrastructure? Or are there reasons why babysitters aren't doing that? Well, babysitters, a lot of the ones I spoke to have other jobs working in either camps or other um, full-time daycare centers because that's a great place to recruit from and most of their gigs they find through these organizations so they're tied to each other 
Amazing. You're listening to Women at Work, by the way, on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest is Yasmin Besson-Casino, author of The Cost of Being a Girl. And we're talking about the wage gap. So, Yasmin, with this issue of camp and babysitting, I was really surprised because I have to confess, there's a great camp here. She loves it. She'd love to work there. But what you're telling me is that camp is the source for the babysitting work. Does that is that because babysitting's more lucrative or it's a schedule that works better for teenagers? Well, it's both. It's lucrative and it's flexible and it usually fits around um, students' time. Usually, you know, people need babysitters over the weekend or nights and that's really... It, that fits into a, a student's schedule. So now talk to me about how um, this network of um, camps, daycares, babysitting, and neighborhood impacts girls of color. That's a very important point. Actually, in one area where I found uh, less inequality was babysitting. A lot of girls of color were able to find babysitting jobs. But most of them found those jobs in more affluent areas. So for them, it was their travel costs and getting to places with those jobs. How were they? Did there was their was their ability any different to negotiate a better pay rate and better work conditions, or were they facing the same problems or worse? Uh, they were facing some of the same problems and even worse. And on top of it, most of them had unpaid travel costs. So that they were bearing the cost of getting to work on top of sometimes being paid less and being asked to do more. Yes, absolutely. And so when these, what happens afterwards? When you talked, you know, in the beginning, the idea, this is the beginning of the wage gap. So we see that they're entering into these roles and they're making less money immediately in these experiences. But they're not yet contributing to Social Security. It's not yet impacting their retirement. Um, How does this wind up, step-by-step, impacting their wage gap over time? Well, some of the problems of the workplace are internalized, and I think some of the work habits, and some of them learn great habits. They learn a work ethic, or they learn scheduling, but they're also learning there's gender wage gap and sometimes their negotiations don't work and they're internalizing almost powerlessness in the workplace. And with my longitudinal data set, I could see that having worked as a teenager results in lower pay for women years later when they get to be 29 and 30. So that's a, for men. And for men, does it result in higher pay? On average, men who have worked as teenagers in the long term make $2,000 per year more. That's amazing. So it's in this case, it's not about the value of the dollars put away. It's about the cost of the work experience on how they see themselves and, and interact with the workplace. Is that a fair way of putting it? Absolutely. So the impact of the learned helplessness and then the hits on self-esteem then positions them in the workplace to not advocate for themselves. And self-esteem was an important issue, especially for uh, girls who worked in apparel and a lot of other retail and service sector jobs. In the long run, they considered themselves and reported feeling overweight. That's interesting. So being in an environment where aesthetic labor was so central, it impacted their self-esteem in a way that hurt them for years to come. 
and not just in teenage years, many, many years later, they still felt bad about their bodies. So if we really want to help our girls develop professional skills but not imp- get impacted by um, these negative results and so give them the best chance to have as narrow a gap as possible, we need to give them experiences that are not structured in these settings where they get this emotional abuse. Absolutely. Yasmin, this has all been amazing. If there are people who want to learn more about your work or places that they can go to help the girls in their lives, what can they look towards? Um, they can look at the cost of being a girl and and look at the um, the recent research on gender inequality because that's where it starts. And if they want to buy your book, where can they find it? On Amazon and at Temple University Press. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and given that you're a working scholar, are you giving any lectures or talks where people can go see you? Oh, absolutely. I will be at the Montclair Literary Festival in March. Fantastic. So for all of you out there who want to learn more from Yasmin about what we can do to help our girls start off their work lives with economic equality, I suggest you give her you give her a look, go see her and check out the book. Yasmin, I can't thank you enough, A, for joining us today on Women at Work, but for the work that you're doing. I think you're bringing a really important new voice to this discussion of such an important topic. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's really been our pleasure. And I'd like to thank all of you out there for joining us and for Greg for calling in. We loved hearing from you. Um, and I hope you're enjoying listening to Women at Work. If any of you listening have some a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also reach Patty that way if you're hearing us when we're rebroadcast. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. You can also follow me on Twitter at Laura Zarrow. I'd like to send a special thank you to my guest today, Yasmin besson Casino. I'd like to thank my fantastic producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111. Have a great day, and happy Valentine's Day, everyone. What's wrong with being, what's wrong with being, what's wrong with being confident? Uh-huh.